So, uh, there was always one year in school that was the worst for me. Well, it happened numerous times. It was the time when your, the, the school would send your report card home and you had to have your parents sign it. And uh, that was always scary for me. I'll tell you why it was scary. Because I got good grades generally except for that one class. There was always one class that was always like just a D and almost an F. And one year... I didn't want my parents to see my report card because the grades weren't stellar. And uh, I think I was in elementary school, and I decided that the best thing to do was to forge my father's signature. The problem was I didn't know how to spell my dad's name. And so on the bus... I put parent's signature, I put Caleb's dad. And to this day, I still do not know how the teacher found out it was a forgery. <laughs> yeah, Caleb's dad. Ugh. Yeah, I, I even knew handing it to her. Yeah, I'm in trouble. I'm, I, I'm, I shouldn't have even signed it. I should have just handed it back. I, uh, there's a lot of consequences, actually. She called my dad. So that was worse, right? Uh, not only that, but then I got punished by having detention. That was a consequence, right? But the one that I didn't see, even as a young person, and I didn't fully understand it, now I understand it, that the teacher never really trusted me after that moment. And, and as a kid, I didn't understand why. I mean, you do one forgery, and all of a sudden, you're a liar. (laughs) But it's true, right? It's true. It makes sense that there would be certain privileges that would be given to more responsible, non-lying students, right? Honest students. Very valuable lesson that I learned as a kid. And there's a lot of those lessons that I learned throughout my life in school, Now, we're still in Wisdom University. We're still in this 30 sayings from the wise teachers, okay? And so today we're going to learn some of those hard lessons that we need to learn about doing good, about being ethical, about being godly and being wise. Some of those lessons that you can't necessarily put in a curriculum, they're those things that you learn in the moment and go, yeah, I'm never going to do that again. So this morning, go with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 24, and notice we're going to be in verse 8, and by God's grace, we'll get down to verse 12. We're going, to, we're going to see three more of these sayings. We're going to go to three more classes, learn three more lessons, okay? So the 23rd class that we're going to take is found in verses 8 through 9 of chapter 24. This is the 23rd saying. And what we're going to find here is we're going to talk about maintaining a good name or maintaining a good testimony, right? So in Proverbs 24, 8 through 9, maintaining your testimony. Then in verse 10, we're going to see the next lesson, the 24th saying, and that will be stand in the Lord's strength, endure in the Lord's strength. And then in verses 11 through 12, We're going to learn our 25th lesson, which is do what's right. 
be brave and do what's right. So let, let's look at these. First, let's, let's look at maintain your testimony in verse 8 through 9. Notice, notice how, what the teacher says. It says, whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. So notice how the teacher starts off, whoever, a person who plans, this is the idea of thinking up, so whoever thinks up, has a plan, has a scheme, probably better translated, who's, whoever is an inventor, we could, we could easily put that word in as well. So instead of planning, just put in the word inventor. So whoever invents, plans, schemes to do evil. What we're talking about here is we're talking about a person who thinks about situations, and as they look at situations, they're looking at angles on how they might benefit and how they could easily fraud someone, how they could trick someone, dupe someone, do something evil. So they're looking for these angles, and they're constantly thinking about this. And, and, and they're really smart in the way that they do their crimes. They're, they're, they're criminal masterminds, right? That's a good phrase, criminal mastermind. They're constantly thinking, and, and they're really smart about the way that they do it. And nine times out of ten, we would never think of that. I don't know if you watch any crime documentary series about some of these masterminds, and you listen to some of the stuff that they do, and you go, if you gave me a million years, I would never come up with that. I watched one about a guy who went in a sewer, dug, figured out where a bank was in the sewer, was able to uh, dig into the bank from, from the sewer, and had this huge fake uh, hold up, so this guy came in and, and held people up by gunpoint while everybody's emptying the safe and is going out through the sewer, comes out through these speed boats, and the only reason they got caught was because one guy was bragging about it. And you just think, in a million years, I would have never thought of all of those things, and it took years of planning. That, that's the type of thing that's talked about here, right? A mastermind to do evil. And notice it says, this person will be called a schemer. So this person who's an inventor, who, who invents to do evil, a way to defraud, he will be known. He will be known in the community as one who is a schemer. Uh, literally translated would be a master of intrigue or a master of trickery. So we're talking about a criminal mastermind will be known as a criminal mastermind. Now you would go, well, that sounds kind of cool, right? To get that title, I'm a criminal mastermind. That just sounds neat. That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to be known as a master of trickery. It's not good to be known for the tricks that we've played in order to defraud people or hurt other people. In fact, that should never be named amongst a believer. There should never be a time where we're known as tricksters, exploiting people. We shouldn't look at people as means to our ends. We shouldn't look at people as a, as a way of how can I get what they have? How can I hurt them in a way because I need to get back at them? Anytime that we invent evil, an evil plan, or conspire an evil plan, or do something that goes against God's will, 
outside of God's timing, and we plan to do that thing that hurts someone else, in a sense, we're inventing evil. Shouldn't even be named amongst us. In fact, rather, the New Testament tells us how we're supposed to think about these things. Go with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Notice what, what Paul says about how we're supposed to think about people and, and, and how we're supposed to view our time and, and the way that we walk. It's not, it's not in inventing ways of doing things that are against God's will or, or inventing ways to hurt people. But, but notice what he says here, and just notice in verse 15, he says, look carefully. This is blepete, this is a command in the Greek, right? So it's literally, you must be on guard. So he, Paul is telling the Ephesian church, be on guard, then what are we supposed to be watching? What, what are, what's the thing that we're supposed to be carefully looking at? He says, be on guard then how you walk. This is how we conduct ourselves, right? We've seen this image in the book of Proverbs several times. This is the way that we conduct ourselves, our lifestyle. So be careful how you live. And, and, then, and then he qualifies it, not as unwise, but as wise, This means that when we're thinking about the course of our life, it has to be run through the prism of wisdom. And remember, wisdom is a successful life that looks like Christ. That's the goal. A wise life looks like Christ. So it must be under the power of the Spirit, right? This this must be with his goals in mind, right? This This is from God's perspective of wisdom. This is not shrewdness. So as I'm considering how I walk, I look through wisdom. Christ is my wisdom. How would Christ act in this situation? And then he says, making the best use of our time. That's a really good translation of of that Greek word there. Some of your translations may say redeeming the time. Really, that's just an idiom that means making the best out of your time, taking every opportunity, looking at every moment as an opportunity. Opportunity to do what? Making the best use of your time because the days are evil. You would say, well, what, what connection does evil days have to do with me making the best use of my time? Two ways, I think. One, things are getting worse, and if we're not making the best use of our time, then the gospel's not getting out and the days will continue to get evil. That's one way of thinking about it. A second way, and I think this is really what Paul's thinking, is the days are evil and you get influenced by that evil. If you are not proactive in guarding your life and looking at your life and making the best use of your time, if you're not proactive here, then the natural progression will happen that you will be tempted by the evil days and you will succumb to the evil days. Right? So the days are evil, you will listen to them and you will become like them. You must not do that, you must be proactive, making the most of your time, filtering that through wisdom. And then he says in verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he says in the following verses, to be filled by the Spirit. And so as a believer... You and I, we're supposed to be on guard of how we walk. We're supposed to walk in ways of wisdom, not in folly. We're not supposed to be influenced by the evil days. We all are influenced, but we need to be proactive and not, and not just give into it, but say, no, I, I want to be biblical. 
This is how we're supposed to think. We're supposed to look at every opportunity as a, or every, t- every moment as an opportunity to exalt Jesus, to live for him, to walk by the power of the Spirit. That is the opposite of what we would see here in Proverbs 24, verse 8. We shouldn't be known as a trickster. <clears throat> we should be known as wise, God-fearing people who exalt Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be known for. <clears throat> It's sad that so many of us Christians are probably known for what we're against or we're known for some political cause, but we're not known for our love and dedication and faith and fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be far better for us to be known for our love for Jesus Christ and all that package that comes with it other than I'm known for this, I'm known for this, I'm known for this, I'm known for this, but they'll never know that I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I also think it would be possible, if I'm thinking about this text correctly in Proverbs 24, 8, I think it's also possible for a a believer to come up with a plan. It's not necessarily the most evil plan, But it's not necessarily one that they find in Scripture. And they scheme and they trick and they manipulate and they do all these things in the guise of sharing the gospel that, in my opinion, would would undercut the actual implications of the gospel. So we got to be careful. Nine times out of ten, when we would read this, we would think of the absolute worst scenario of what evil is. And we would go, well, that's what he's talking about. I think Proverbs is right where we're at. And so there's probably several times this past week that we've come up with schemes, trickery. We invented something that wasn't what God wanted. Now, notice the next verse in verse 9. It says, the devising of folly is sin. So that... This word is probably the same as the word that is found in verse 8 about plans. It has the idea of strategy. So whoever strategizes, uh, their, their strategy is of folly. That, that word of folly most likely means that the source of the strategy comes from foolishness, which in the book of Proverbs is all of that which is opposed to God's wisdom. So if I come up with a plan that is not rooted in God's word, that's not rooted in sound theology, that's not rooted in sound biblical thinking, that's not from faith, where I'm not, where I'm not under the, the uh, where I'm not walking by the power of the spirit, but I'm walking in the flesh, any plan that's rooted in that, notice what he says, is sin. So the planning of it is a sin. You see that, right? That's why when we define sin, we say it's anything that we would say, think, or do that goes against God's will or his character, right? Goes against the word. Even the thinking of these types of things, the planning and the strategy. This is similar to Jesus when he says, if you have anger in your heart, Towards someone else, it is like you've committed murder. If you have lust in your heart towards someone else, it is as if you've committed adultery. The very thought and intentions of thinking through those things are sinful. Now, 
I want to say this. We all struggle here. This, this is a big struggle because our thoughts go here, there, everywhere, right? This is why it's so vital for us to take the advice from Paul in Romans 12 that says that we need to be renewing our minds, renewing our minds. We renew our minds by spending time in God's word. We renew our minds by spending time in prayer. We renew our minds by hanging out with like-minded brothers and sisters like this. This is why this is important. If you don't have something that's counteracting the flesh on a regular basis, there's a really good chance this becomes where you stay. This becomes your home. This is is how you strategize about everything. If you're not spending time in God's word, the only other place that you have to draw for strategy and goals and, and intentions is the flesh. And if that's where all of this is coming from, if that's the source, that, that, that's, that's bad. That turns out really bad. Now notice the next statement that he says. He says, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. The, the mere existence of a scoffer, this one who, who's the mastermind who invents evil, he is loathed by the society. And it makes sense. I mean, for example, what would happen if somebody had a kid and you would say, what's the kid's name? Adolf. What would you do? Adolf? You mean like the, like the Hitler guy? That's weird. We always think of Hitler in that way. We, we, always, we always see him as a, as a bad person in history. He's never a good person. right? He's always a bad person. There's, that, that will always be attached with his name. He's an abomination to society as a whole. This is is not anything that a believer should be involved in, of being a scoffer, of of inventing trickery, of of exploiting people. It shouldn't even be named amongst us. Because if we do those things, notice what the principle is. A scoffer is an abomination. People don't like that. That's loathe. You become a social pariah. Now, I want to say this. I am very thankful for the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel that even the most hardened scoffer can find the grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Right? I'm so very thankful for that. I'm so very thankful. I also believe this, that a believer should be walking by the power of the Spirit and as a believer does that, walking by the power of the Spirit, I believe that there will be the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit will give you a good testimony, a good name, right? You will have love, joy, peace, patience, kind of, and I believe that this is the normal thing for a believer. But I also do know this. It would be possible for us to look at this passage and say that anyone who's hated by mankind and by society at large is obviously then under the curse of God. So if, there's, if anyone looks down on someone else, it obviously must mean that they're an abomination. That's not necessarily true. The Lord Jesus Christ was hated by the world. Believers are persecuted. So the persecution does not automatically make someone a scoffer. And just because we are marginalized for our faith in Jesus Christ 
does not mean that we're violating this. It is possible for someone to be a believer and to act like a scoffer and society and other believers go, I don't want to be around that person who acts like a scoffer. That's possible. And that's what I want to avoid for us. And that's what I want to encourage you to walk by the power of the Spirit, to to not be like that, to, to not be like the scoffer. Now, we all struggle with the flesh, and we all struggle with all of that ickiness. And, and just because you struggle doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a believer. I believe that once a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, they are eternally secured by the power of God. And God will secure them and keep them until the day of glory. Right? That is true. And I believe that he who began a good work will complete it. He is working on us. And there is that influence of the Holy Spirit. But I do also believe that a believer can act fleshly and get to, a, get to a place where they become an abomination to their neighbors, where their neighbors go, I don't like that guy. That guy's a jerk. That guy's a terrible neighbor. Do you know what he does? He does this, he does this, he does this. But then he claims to be a Christian. If that's how Christians act then I don't want to be one. That's what we need to avoid as believers. We we need to be walking by the power of the Spirit so that we we are exhibiting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And and, and let's make sure that the reason why people are persecuting us is not because of our behavior, but is because of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that they persecuted us him, and if we're attached to him, they persecute us also. This is an important thing, important thing uh, in, in the community that we live, that we need to have, that we mean, need to maintain a godly testimony. Just come back from Wyoming. In Wyoming, there are a lot of people who hold to the teaching that if you are godly, you will be healthy and wealthy. And part of that comes a lot of schemers who claim to be Christians but want to get rich off of that type of teaching. To assume that the community around that type of false teaching doesn't know what's going on is also a little naive. They know what's going on. And so there's numerous times where you will share the gospel with somebody and they will say, well, I can't afford to go to church, or I don't want to go to church. You guys are all tricksters. All you want is money. All you're trying to do is get rich because I see these people on TV and they're doing all these things. We have to understand that a testimony is something that takes a long time to cultivate, but in a moment can be lost. And so we need to have a good name, and we need to be acting with wisdom and discernment. Let's go to the next thing about standing in the Lord's strength. Notice in verse 10. Kind of interesting, he starts off with a condition. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. This idea for fainting is the idea of relaxing, of letting go. Could speak of discouragement, but ultimately speaks of somebody who is, has a lack of resolve, somebody who taps out, somebody says, I'm done. I'm done. Fainting here is not, not just, I gave everything I got and I got nothing else. This is more of an idea of of somebody going, we're good, I'm done, I tap out, I'm stopping. 
I'm relaxing. I'm no longer fighting. So notice that if a person does that in the day of adversity, and the word here for adversity is, uh, could easily be translated, when everything is going wrong, right? When your check engine light comes on while your tire blew, while you're going over a cliff, right? When everything is going wrong and you go, I'm done. That, that's, that's what's being talked about here, okay? Notice what the conclusion is. Your strength is small. So, so what does he mean by this? It, it means, one, you're probably not as strong as you think you are if you tap out in the middle when things start going wrong, right? In the middle of a crisis, if you say, I'm done, I'm done, I'm, I'm not living for the Lord, I'm not doing these things for the Lord anymore, I'm done because it's too tough, probably weren't as strong as you thought you were. But, but I will say this, there is no one in this room, especially myself, that is strong by ourselves. Without the Lord, we all tap out all the time, right? There's no, there's no reason to be strong if I don't have the Lord. But because of the Lord, I have the strength, right? I have this power. I'm empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit. So apart from the Lord, no one is strong. With the Lord, believers are strong. And part of this evidence of a believer is one of endurance. It is one to go through difficult times and to have their faith intact. That they're not, they're not doing things that are, are, are opposite of the faith, but, but they're, they're struggling and they're grinding and, and they're relying upon the Lord and his strength and the Holy Spirit and they're going through these crises, right? There's a lot of stuff going on. You could think of Job. Job had a lot of stuff going on, right? He struggled in the middle. He struggled in the middle, right? A lot of struggle. Had lots of questions. But at the end of it, he was stronger. He went through. He endured. This is a mark of the believer's endurance, And as believers, in a sense, we're really the only ones who can go through these situations because we have the Lord. We we, we may mourn, we may may go through difficult things, but we have the strength of the Holy Spirit leading us through. We have the encouragement of God's word. By ourselves, we we will always fail. We will always tap out. We, We will always walk away. But because of the Lord, we have the power to stand strong. We have the power to to go through these things. But just know this. You might say, I am strong, and go through a crisis and realize I'm not as strong as I thought I was. And that is a really good thing to, to learn about yourself. I'm not as good as I thought I was. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. Because then at least you know, now I can rely on the Lord And now I can build myself up. If you do fail, know this. God is a gracious, forgiving God. And you are kept by his power. So even if you do in the midst of a crisis go, I'm done. I'm walking away. But then you come back, know that you are kept by God's love and power. But also know this. Crises are coming. I don't know what that crisis is going to be. You might be in the middle of a crisis right now. But they're coming. And they're never fun, and they're always tough. You need to get ready now. We need to get ready for crisis now. We need to get trouble. We need to get ready for that trouble now. And we're, 
And God just doesn't say, trouble's coming, get ready. He also gives us advice on how to strengthen ourselves. So I'd like to turn back to Proverbs chapter 2. Because remember, he gave us advice on this endurance of how we build up our strength. Of course, it it means that I'm relying upon the the strength of the Lord. Of course, it means that I'm relying upon the the Holy Spirit. But there's there's this thing that we can do. We can work out a little bit as well. And, and we, can, we can develop this resolve, and this is how we develop it. So just notice in 2.1, notice, notice what Solomon says here about how we get stronger. He says, my son, if you receive my words, it starts with the word, friends. We got to be spending time in the word. And notice here Solomon says we got to receive the word. This, this means to accept it, accept it as true. Okay, and then he says, treasure my, my commandments within you. So not only do I need to receive this book as being true from God, but this also needs to be the thing that's the most valuable to me. These words are the most valuable words. It's one thing to say this is God's word. It's another to say this is God's word and it's precious to me. This is where I go to get advice. This is it. This is it. This is the treasure. This is the thing that I'm keeping with me, Right? In the midst of the fire, when I'm grabbing one thing to save, it's this. That, that's the sense. And then notice, it's in verse 2, make your ear attentive to wisdom, to, to, to lean in, to listen, and then incline your heart. So, so you're giving yourself every opportunity to listen to God's wisdom. You're, you're inclining your heart. It's an attitude of saying, whatever it says, I will do. Right? So it starts with the word. It has to start with the word. And it has to start with this, this approach to the word. This is the right way to approach God's word. This is where it starts. Then notice verse 3. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. It requires prayer. Lots of prayer. It requires prayer of lifting up your voice and asking God, God, help me understand God, help me understand your word. Help me understand you. Help me understand your way, right? It's a a raising of one's voice. It's a crying, meaning that it's a passionate plea. God, I, I desperately need your help to apply this to my life. So it's spending time in God's word. It's spending time in prayer. And then, and then notice... Notice what he says in verse 4. If you seek it, this is God's wisdom, like silver, and search for it for hidden treasure. In Wyoming, there's no silver, but there is a hidden treasure called coal. And I see what those people do to get coal. They tear up the ground. They spend thousands upon millions of dollars getting trucks the size of the parsonage to dig up the earth. They're spending 24-7 in there, when it's snowing, when it's raining, when it's icy, they're down there digging, 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 digging. They're wanting to get every single last piece of coal out of that coal vein. It's intensive work. It's an intensive desire. That's the desire that we as believers need to have in searching God's word, in praying. It's as if we're, we're, we're digging until we find the greatest treasure we could ever think of. Think of it like we're Indiana Jones. I'm willing to go around the world 400 times just to find one little skull thing, right? That's the sense. But notice the result. 
It says in verse 5, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord, and you'll find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the evil way from the men of perverted speech who, per, who forsake the path of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked, who are devious in their ways. Notice, he says, you will learn the right way and you will not be like those people, notice in verse 13, who forsake. They tap out. I'm not doing this anymore. Notice that there's this sense of endurance. This is what happens. and This is the process that Solomon has given us on how we strengthen. Of course, it requires the discernment. Of course, it requires the power of the Holy Spirit it must come from a person who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But th- this is how we get strong. It's not by watching Fox News. It's by spending time in God's word. It's not by listening to the radio. It's not by doing all these other things. It's by spending time in God's word. Th- this is how we get prepared. This is how we stay strong. By doing the things that God prescribes. L- let's go back to Proverbs 24. There's one other lesson that we got to learn here. This is a tough one. We would, I would like to think that I do this, but as I think back the past couple weeks, my life, this one's tough. This one's a tough one. Verse 11, 24. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. So here, there's this idea of rescuing those who are being taken away to death. It, it most likely is referring to a court case where somebody is uh, unjustly condemned to death, and you have an opportunity to bring certain evidence to light that might stay the execution. Uh, It could refer to someone being taken as a prisoner of war and taken to an execution when they they shouldn't be and and you have uh, the ability to stop it. But the idea is doing what is right, right? And this requires a certain level of bravery, doesn't it? A certain level of courage to do what's right knowing that everyone wants something else and you're going to stand up and say, no, I'm going to do what's right regardless of what everyone else is saying. And then notice this next one. It says, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. It could be referring to the rescuing above. It may be like you are acting like a guardrail of somebody who is doing something really foolish that could cause them to lose their life, right? Like somebody's going to go seek revenge on someone else and about ready to, to do something very foolish, and you're the one that's holding them back saying, don't go, don't go. Lots of different ways we could think about this. 
But ultimately what you see is that there's this sense of a wise person, that a wise person values life, every life, because every life is, every person is made in the image of God. Therefore, every life is valuable. And so there's this sense of, I want to be the protector of that. I don't want you to, to needlessly die, especially, especially if there's corruption involved. So notice what happens in verse 12. He says, if you say, behold, we did not know this. Uh, this is a Hebrew idiom, which uh, may be translated as, look, man, it's none of my business. It's none of my business. I don't know anything about it. I don't want to know anything about it because it's none of mine, right? Let, let them deal with it themselves. Solomon is using this, by the way, as a, as a, a derogatory thing, meaning that it's most likely that you do have a responsibility for this one person who is going to the death and this one person who's going to be slaughtered. It's not like we butt into everyone's business and we try to become the savior of every person. The sense is, is that we each have certain responsibilities of certain people in our family and in society and, and where it is our responsibility and we have the ability to do something, that's where we act. It's not, this is not an, this is not a, uh, blank check to butt into everyone's business by saying, I'm here to rescue people. I'm Superman. I'm here to rescue you from your problems. So I'm going to butt in and figure out everything that's going on. That's not necessarily what Solomon is saying. The sense is that, there, that you have a real obligation and responsibility in this person's life. But this person is trying to skirt that responsibility by saying, it's really none of my business when in fact it really is their business. So then Solomon then poses three questions. Notice the first question. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Meaning, God's the judge. He knows the intentions of your heart. He knows what you're doing, right? I mean, he sees it, right? This omniscient, omnipresent God who's sovereign, who's just and good, he, he knows. He, he knows why you're really saying this excuse. You might fool me, Caleb Hilbert, but that excuse is not going to sway him. He knows. So the idea is, be careful. There's an omnipresent, omniscient God who knows why you're saying what you're saying. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. He knows. By the way, just, ask, just by thinking that, automatically we should go, okay, there's a lot of stuff that I'm doing that I now need to stop because the Lord sees it and he knows it. I thought I was alone, but I'm not. Okay. Notice the next one. Second question. Does not he who keeps, who keeps watch over your soul know it? Now, this one's kind of an interesting one. So, obviously, God knows it. But why does he say, doesn't he who keeps watch over your soul, knows it. You see? You kind of see the little, the little thing that the, that, the, that the teacher's trying to say? God watches over you. God rescues you. God holds you back. Why are you giving an excuse not to rescue and hold back someone else from death? If God does it to you, what, what gives you the right to say, I'm going to take what God gives me and I'm not going to reciprocate that to anyone else? Right? 
It's kind of hypocritical, isn't it? It's kind of a hypocritical thing. I need to be protected, but you don't. That's what that question is going towards. Then notice the next one. And will not he repay man according to his works? Now, as believers, we realize that we've entered into this relationship with God like he's our heavenly father. We know that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So I'll never be condemned. But he does deal with us like a father. And doesn't a father punish and discipline when his children go astray? Of course a father does. A good father does. Does not a good father encourage and reward parents who are are children that are obedient? Of course a good father does that. So in a sense, doesn't a good father look at his children and when his children have an opportunity to do what's right, even if it's uncomfortable and it needs a little bit of courage and they stand up and do what's right, does not a father say, good job? Doesn't a good father do that? Of course a good father encourages that. Doesn't also a good father, when they see their children slipping on their responsibilities and because they cave to peer pressure, not fulfill one of their responsibilities, doesn't he as a good father at least, at least discipline, at least give a lecture? Doesn't a good father at least do that? Of course a good father does that. So doesn't, doesn't, doesn't he deal with us as a good father? Of course. We, we know this is true. And, and so knowing that we have a heavenly father who's watching us, who protects us and cares for us, wouldn't that be the most hypocritical thing not to do that, to shirk our responsibilities when we have a possibility of doing what's right, even if it's uncomfortable? Those are the lessons, right? The last one's kind of a difficult one, right? One of courage, of being brave, doing what's right regardless. It's very easy Very easy just to say, I'll go along with the flow. Put my head down. I don't need to know. I didn't see a thing. It's kind of like that thing that we saw in Ephesians 5, wasn't it? Let's go back there, Ephesians 5.15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. They're evil. Being part, of, part of being evil is that they're tempting and we get influenced by the evil of our day, do we not? It's easier for us to get influenced. So we gotta stand strong on the God's word, right? Now, I had shared before that I had problems with permission slips with my teachers. I would love to say that I really learned my lesson and I never got in trouble for another report card, but that's not true. Uh, fast forward a couple, couple years, I find myself in detention again. You want to know why? Because I didn't turn in a report card, right? Uh, I don't know why. They weren't necessarily bad grades. I just didn't. And once again, the same things kind of happened, right? They called my dad. He was the one I didn't want to know in the first place. I was praying that my mom was home. My mom is far more lenient than my dad. Consequences were bad. My teacher, who I was supposed to turn it into, uh, when, when there were special responsibilities and privileges given out to the class, guess who didn't get one because they were deemed irresponsible? 
There, there, there's, these, there's these lessons that we learn. And as believers, we, we need to make sure that we are maintaining our testimony, right? That, that's something that's very important. It, it's not just important because we, we should just care about our name and having a good name. It's important because when we then go out and share the message of Jesus Christ, they need to see that transformed life and that consistent life. Without that transformed life, if they just see us walking by the flesh, they go, we already do that. You're not offering me anything better than what I already have. I can already walk by the flesh. You're walking by the flesh. What do you have that's so much better? It's only through that transformed life that, that, that really then does the gospel have real power, right? Has, has a real voice. We need to endure. As believers, we need to be ones who are endurant through difficult things. We need to rely upon the Lord's strength through those times and say, you got to help me through this. you got to help me through this. And we need to do what's right, uh, even if there is persecution and influence for us to do what is wrong. We have to do what's right regardless. But I'm very thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, who here's the standard. We're never going to meet that standard. But he is very gracious and forgiving and forgives us of our sins. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what do we do after that? We say, well, then we're going to do it again, right? We're going, we're going, to, we're going to live for the Lord and we're going to fail again. What do we do? The same thing, because we're kept by his power and not by our performance. We, ser- we truly do serve a wonderful God who saved us on the basis of grace. And this morning, we're going to have an opportunity to think about this grace and celebrate this grace by thinking about the Lord's table. So this time, I'm going to ask the musicians to come up, and Greg, if you'd come up. We're going to pass out the elements. I would ask that you wouldn't open and partake until we can all do it together as we kind of walk through 1 Corinthians 11.